Hey, my name is Blake Davis and I'm the pastor here. I want to thank you so much for tuning in to the Firm Foundation Church podcast. Our desire every single week is that you are challenged and encouraged in your faith. Enjoy the message. We are going to be reading from Matthew 13, 24 through 30, and this is known as the parable of the wheat and the tares. So I'm going to read from my Bible. The one I have posted is from the NIV, and I have the NASV, so there's a little bit of discrepancy from what I read. That's, from, that's where it is. So it says, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of God may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No. For while, you are gathering, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. So allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, gather, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. So this parable is, as Chris mentioned last week, parables are simple stories that talk about profound biblical truths. And the reason why he was speaking in this way was because his audience were not learned academics, um, Pharisees, scholars, you know, the elites of the group. They were actually regular um, people that probably came from a multitude of, of Background. Some of them might have, might have been wealthy. Some of them were Pharisees. However, a good part of what, who Jesus was trying to communicate to was not those people, but actually the poor, the, the, the downtrodden, the people who would have been considered outcasts in that, in that day. And the reason why is because Jesus, similar to the audience that he was speaking to, didn't come in privilege he wasn't coming as a high, mighty king, as many suspected he would be coming in as, but rather through vulnerability, poverty, and weakness, he reveals himself to the world in that way. And the reason why is because he wanted to reach the same type of people, vulnerable, po- poverty-stricken, the, the, the people who would have been considered outcasts. And the this is really important because it, lay, it tells us what the character of Jesus looked like. He was like against all the thought of that day. Jesus actually appealed to those who others would not have seen as righteous. Um, it says in Matthew thirteen eleven, um, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, not, but to them it has not been granted. Um, Back in chapter 11:25, it says, At the time Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. 
So let's look at this parable in detail. In the first few verses, Jesus says that the kingdom of of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat. That's what I just read. Um, Jesus uses a farming story because it was easily relatable. People could understand it. Jesus wasn't looking to feel, as I said before, to another type of demographic. He was, he was telling a story that all people could relate to. Now, what was he trying to say? Well, I want to quickly talk about a little bit of the cultural context of that day so that people, so that you guys understand what, what's the point? What, what was the point of these parables? Um, so throughout the Old Testament, there's a cycle that happens. We've talked about it before in previous sermons. Blake has mentioned it. It's a story that goes something like this. So God's people, Israel, is held in captivity and slavery to another nation, and God and his faithfulness comes and pulls them out of it through some kind of miraculous, you know, either through the plagues like in Egypt, or he uses the most unlikely person that anyone could ever think of, and then he, he, he conquests and, and brings them out of their captivity. But in order, to, and out of that captivity comes an incredible blessing that could potentially be sustained. It's, 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 a, it's an opportunity that, that is presented to them. So, but in order to sustain that blessing, in order to take advantage of that opportunity, God calls his people to obedience. And he calls them to follow him. And then for a while, the Israelites sit there and say, oh yeah, we'll be obedient. But then... As time goes on, humans eventually fall into sin and adultery. And then, lo and behold, after many warnings, eventually, conquest, you know, neighboring countries come in and conquest Israel, and the cycle starts all over, where they start crying out to God, and God liberates them. Now, in the last time that they fell into captivity, was from, first it was from Babylon, then it became Assyria, and then eventually the Romans. So the Israelites, the leaders of, of the day, the, the, the religious scholars, reasoned that the reason why they were doing this, why God was allowing these people to take, the over, take them over to conquest them, was because people weren't following the law close enough. That's what they thought. And so they created a very, very strict um, they, they not only followed the law zealously, but they created a bunch of extra layers of laws so that you potentially couldn't even cross the line to go into, you know, to potentially break the laws that God had for them. And the consequence of this type of behavior was that there was a few people who had the means and the ability and the innate intelligence to be able to study the word day in and day out. Um, they had the ability to, to, to follow the law, but for anybody who potentially made a mistake, for anybody who, who, who bad things happened to instead of something they, they did, it created this rift between the people. So, so there, was, there were people who, who were outcasts, 
because they, they had diseases they could not account for. Um, they, they maybe had, were divorced or, or something happened where they were taken advantage of. And, and all these things led to this great disparity between the religious people and then the outcasts of that day. And so this is the type of audience that Jesus is trying to talk to. He's talking to the people who were outcasts, but also the religiously zealous people. Now, when we look at the parable, what I do know about farming, what little I do know, you can ask my dad about that, um, is that when you plant a seed and they first start propping up, it is not uncommon for weeds, that's, the NIV calls it weeds, but in my version, it's tares. The weeds grow along, right along with it. And sometimes they don't, you can't even distinguish between the two. So because they, don't, because they look similar, you almost have to wait until they start growing and maturing. And then, and then you can see what the differences between the, the, what was actually planted and the, and the tares around it. I remember there was one story that I had growing up where my mom asked me to weed the flower bed outside of the house. And, you know, granted, in, in all my, well, not my defense to accuse myself, I wasn't really all that motivated to do it anyway. But I just saw a bunch of flowers there, and I just cleaned the whole thing out. And I was like, Mom, I did it. And then she goes out, and she's like, where are my plants? And I was like, well, you didn't tell me which ones were the plants. Fortunately, you know, God is a little more thorough than I am. So, so we see that there, there's, there's the, the plants and the wheats and the tares, and they grow up together. Later on in, in Matthew uh, 36 through 43, I won't read it, but, but basically God summarizes and kind of gives an explanation for what the elements of the parable actually kind of signify. So, for example... He says that the master, he calls them the landowner, that's God. That's, that's the Son of Man. That's Jesus. Who, who, and he orders, he, he, he's the one that plants the seeds. And then the, the, the slaves are actually the angels. The, um, the NIV uses, um, I believe, the word workers or employees or his servants. Um, so anyway, so he, he explains the elements of what each part of the parable means, but he doesn't really explain what the implications of the parable are. And that's for us, really, to, to try to understand the Bible in the whole context and what, the, what Jesus was identifying in other parts of, of the Gospels and what's said throughout the Bible in the Old Testament as well. Um, because I think that this parable is actually a story that warns against works-based salvation. I know we've heard that, maybe some of us have heard that that term before, and I want to kind of flesh it out a little bit more. So so he says that, that, he says that the tares and the wheat, they, uh, they grow up together, and then at the time of harvest, they'll be separated. So, the reason why I say that it's against works-based salvation is because at first glance, the wheat and the tares, the wheat and the weeds look exactly the same. 
I believe that what Jesus was trying to say was that the people who were originally thought of as the, the, the heroes of the day, the Pharisees, they weren't like how modern people see, see religious people. Um, they were the hero. They were, everyone wanted to be the Pharisees. They wished they could be Pharisees because the belief was that if you did all the right things, if you followed the law to a T, that that meant that God was going to bless you and that you were closer to God as a result. And the truth is, is that, that that's not really what that's not what the Bible says at all. If you remember the story of Job, one of the things that's amazing about Job is that he was a righteous man. It says that he was he was one of the most righteous in that area. And that and the devil sat there and said, you know, the reason why he's so righteous is because you bless him. And God says, Well, no, I'll prove it to you by throwing him under the bus and then allowing him to you know, have a lot of bad things happen to him. And that's what exactly what happens. And, and through it all, so, so, so Job gets all these curses, all these bad things happen to him. And he, even though he struggles with it, it's not without any kind of, he, he, he prays about it. He, he, he still worships God. He still acknowledges God as his savior, but he still doesn't understand why it is why it is that he's doing these things. And his friends come along and they try, to, they try to say, oh, well, obviously the reason why God is cursing you is because you've done something wrong. Well, and that's the whole point of Job. Is, so that's a, that's, a, that's a book of wisdom. That's a fundamental book in the Old Testament. And it directly goes against what the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the teachers of the law thought about their righteousness. In other parts of the New Testament, like in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, it says that in this verse, people will hold the form of godliness and yet deny its power. In Luke eleven thirty nine, it says, Now you Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. Now these are pretty strong words to say about people who were thought of as the religious elites. I mean, it's no wonder why, when Jesus was saying these things, the Pharisees really wanted to get rid of him, because they were like, man, he's throwing us under the bus. I thought he was was part of our community. And the truth was, is that Jesus was pointing this something out, because there's a fundamental truth to be said about workplace righteousness, that it doesn't lead anywhere, it doesn't produce any fruits. So what I want to go through the next couple of minutes is to quickly go through some of the, the characteristics of what I call, you know, the weeds or the tares. Um, three, three points that hopefully are easy to remember. <laughs> um, and so I'll just get right into it. The first point is that tares are a lot less concerned about God and a lot more concerned about other people. This is because they believe that their salvation is based or achieved through acts of service and righteousness, not actually by grace. So when you believe those things, the natural consequence is for you to look at other people who aren't that way, who don't do the same things as you, and to kind of look down on them. That's where I think we get a lot of the religious judgment that, that 
you know, in modern days, the secular people tend to dismiss so much. They're like, oh, well, well, religious people are this way. Well, I would say that religious people who assume that their, their salvation is achieved by their own works, yeah, that, that is the way that they think. We, we tend to judge other, we even tend to judge other Christians in the church because, well, I didn't see that person come in last week to church. Oh, I, you know, I heard this person only gives 5% instead of his, instead of 10%. Or, you know, oh, I hate listening to that person pray because he just stutters all the time. So these, these are those kind of judgmental attributes that, that, and it's easy for us, you know, and I'm not saying that any of us are particularly the weak, but for those of us who believe that we're saved, we can, if we're, we're honest with ourselves, any one of us can get caught in that. So we have to be careful. Okay, the second point, the second trait that I believe Tares has is that they believe their workspace righteousness earns them and purchases blessing for their lives. This is what is known as the prosperity gospel. Nowadays, it's given, you know, a fancy, fancy name. But this is basically what it is, is that, well, if I do all the right things, then God, as a result of his faithfulness, needs to give me my blessings. And the problem with that is that does not account for reality. So... When, when you go through your trials, a lot of times these types of people will look at these trials and say, well, God, where are you? Well, God's always been there, but the problem is you, you pictured him as, as your genie in a bottle instead of the savior of the universe, the savior, your savior. So they have a tendency to believe that, that they're their righteousness earns their blessing. Have you, have you guys heard of people who have walked away from the faith because they said, well, how can I believe in God when, when he took my mother away from me? Or, or, you know, oh, how can I believe in a God if, I'm, if my girlfriend or boyfriend broke up with me? Oh, there's no way that, I mean, I was so happy. Well, that's not how God operates. It's not because God purposely curses people, but that's just the way of, Life. And so we tend to think that God earns, that we earn our salvation, and therefore we believe that because, because we get things from God, that means that, we're, that, that makes us feel like we are something important. And that's just not the reality of things. Then the final trait that I want to talk about with, with the, the tares, with the weeds, the, what I, maybe what you could call false Christians, is that there's no real passion, no emotion, and no feeling behind any of their works that they do for God. So these people come to church, and they might, you know, come for songs, but inside it's just music playing in the background. When they read the Word, it's purely an intellectual exercise that maybe they can use to weaponize against somebody else, but in reality... God despises these religious activities, especially if there's no heart between them. One of my favorite verses is in Isaiah chapter 1, 
12 through 15. He sits there and says, so when you spread out your hands in prayer, this is in the Old Testament, by the way. <laughs> he says, when you, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. This is God talking. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen because your hands are covered in blood. Wash yourselves, therefore, and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan and plead for the widow. You see, I think that's a very uh, prevalent issue in in America today with the church in America is, is that we believe that these 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 religious activities either will will earn you something on this earth and therefore they they're not really worshiping God when they come to worship they worship their the blessing God desires our hearts above anything else and that actually is an encouragement for those of us who might not have had a perfectly righteous life. Um, because the truth is, is that, like, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the Pharisees and, and, and the religious leaders, they worked very, very hard to make sure that their lives looked as picture-perfect as they possibly could. There was, they, they, they had, there was no you know, diseases that they, they openly admitted to. You know, they never, they never openly confessed any of, any of the things that they were struggling with. They, they couldn't. And that's what I think this type of religious, uh, this, this type of workspace righteousness, this type of, uh, this type of religion doesn't have any passion. There's no feeling or emotion behind it. So it, it, it's, it's kind of a little bit, and I think it's, it's encouraging for those of us who might not have had a perfect upbringing because the truth is God wants you regardless of that. And also it can be a little bit sobering for those of us um, in the church who might look at yourself and maybe you say, man, I'm not really all that emotional of a person. So maybe, you know, maybe I'm not where I need to be. And I'd say, if you ask that question, that's a good sign. Because that shows that the, because I've heard it said, um, the sign of uh, absence in your life, if you look at your life and say, man, I'm not experiencing God the way that I think I should, that's a good sign. But don't stay there. If God truly loving wants you to feel more of him. Okay. So now this is this is kind of the the background to what I want people to take away. And I and I think so we know what it looks like to be a weed or a tear. Now what does it look like? What attributes do the wheat have? So I think there's three things, and I even gave them alliteration. So they all start with H's, so people should be able to remember them. So I was pretty impressed with myself for that. Not my most humble moment. 
Um, <laughs> so the first one is to be humble. And I think humility, especially in terms of being a believer, that means that, that we realize that our salvation is not achieved through anything that we do. It's, it's purely an act of grace. And grace means unmerited favor. So when we, li- when we understand and know that, we can live our lives accordingly. It affects us. When we realize that, it affects, it affects how we look at God and it affects how we look at other people. So contrasting to what, um, what the tares, how the tares looked at other people, where they, where they tended to judge other people, the wheat see other people in light of their own struggles, their own sin. And it doesn't mean that the, the wheat don't care and, and passive just kind of, oh, let's not talk about sin. No, but it means that when they talk, confront somebody about a sin pattern that they might be seeing, they do it with care and sensitivity. Um, so it changes the way that we look at other people. It makes us more compassionate towards them. It helps us to be able to, to help other people. And, and I think that's the way that God always intended us to confront people's sin. It's not to bash them over the head and, and make them afraid to even step near a church. It's actually to sit there and say, you know what? We love you and therefore we want you to experience more of God. And, and that's the reason why you, sh- you need to at least confront some of the sin patterns that you have. But again, it's not because they're bad and, and we're so good. It's actually because, man, I'm just as screwed up as you are. Maybe more. <laughs> so it changes the way we look at other people. And then the other thing that humility tends to do is it changes the way we look at God. We don't see God as some genie in the bottle where, where if you do all the right things, if you say the right prayers, you say the right words, that God will rain down blessing on you. When we see that our, our, our salvation is achieved, achieved by grace, we, we thank God for every opportunity that he has spared us in this life. And, and that even that changes the way we, we see struggles because we sit there and say, God, thank you for another day in this life. So humility allows us to see other people with more compassion, and it allows us, allows us to see God for who he really is, which is our Savior. It's not, he's not our, our you know, um, he's not our genie in a bottle. He's our Savior. Um, I want to tell you a quick story. For those of you guys, if you guys ever seen Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, from uh, the, either the movie or read the books, there's a part in, in, the, in the story that I really, really enjoyed because it just spoke so much to what that you know, humility is supposed to look like. Um, so in the scene where, where they're getting ready for this big old battle between the Aslan's army, who's you know, the Christ figure in the story, spoilers, um, and then there's uh, the witch, the forces of evil, and they go and they have this, they're getting ready for this battle. And the witch comes 
And, and she comes up to Aslan and says, one of the boys, one of the humans that you're trying to protect has actually broken the law, laid down at the beginning of time, and therefore the penalty of that is that that boy needs to be sacrificed and should be killed. And by the way, she wasn't wrong. For those of you guys who don't know, Edmund, his character, was quite a turd. He was, <laughs> he was just awful. So he goes, and it turns out in the story that Aslan decides to take on Edmund's punishment for himself. And he was the one, Aslan was the one, who ended up getting the sacrifice. And it's just a great picture of, of what Christ did for us. For those of you guys who don't know, C.S. Lewis wrote that story so that his grandchildren can understand the Gospels a lot better. So it's a perfect allegory for what, what the Gospels actually are trying to say. And that's the same thing that Jesus did for us. He took our sin. We had no case for God because he was the, the sin debt that we had accumulated was so great. And he took that and took it upon himself so that our sin debt was erased. And that should move us to be more humble towards him and towards other people. The next part is, um, is that the wheat are hungry. Now, I'm hungry right now. But this is like, and what I mean by hungry is that he's, they're passionate about pursuing God. In Psalm 42, it says, As the deer pants for water, so my soul pants for you. Now that's talking about water, but it's the same type of feeling. It's this yearning for more of God's presence. See, when we really want to experience more of him, those religious activities that, that tend to get abused, those things come more naturally to us, and, and we do them for the right reasons. We shouldn't be worshiping because if we raise our hands, it makes us look more passionate. We should be raising our hands because it's a symbol of us reaching out to our Father and wanting more of Him. When we pray for other people and for ourselves, we don't pray to a God who has to answer our prayers. We pray to a God, a Father who knows that, that we are His children, and, and that should move us towards uh, compassion and, and thankfulness. So all those things, so those, those are some of the characteristics. By the way, the other thing too, hungry people, when they experience more of God, should want to come to church on a Sunday because they're not just communing with God personally, they're communing with God in a group setting. And when you get a group of believers together, you just experience more of God's presence. So those are the things, your hunger, your passion for the Lord should spur you to do what, what's known as the, those religious acts. So when somebody sits there and says, oh, are you religious? You should have confidence and say, yes, I'm religious, but it's for the right reasons. <laughs> so the last trait of a, 
of, of the wheat is that they choose to be holy. Now that word kind of scares us a little bit because, you know, we sit there and we might look at some of the things in the Bible and we sit there and say, oh man, I don't know about this. But the truth is, is that at some point we have to, holy means set apart. It means, it means it's made special. It's designated as, as different. It's, it's not, if I, if I call the chair the holy chair, some random run-of-the-mill person isn't just going to take it and, and use it for a WWE match. <laughs> they're, going to t- take it with, they're going to treat it with priority. So when we sit there and say that we choose to be holy, we're saying that we choose to live our lives differently than the rest of the, what the rest of the world, what the rest of the culture says to live their lives. And yes, that does mean obedience. That, that's why we need to read the scripture. The scriptures do tell us how to be obedient, but that's not the way to get into heaven. The way to get into heaven is through Jesus Christ and through believing in his sacrifice and what he's done for us. But we should live our lives changed by that fact. Yes, being holy means that we have to avoid sexual immorality. And, you know, that can appeal to all of us to some degree. That means that we shouldn't disparage other people or gossip. I'm guilty of that one. You know, being angry and holding bitterness towards people, that's not, that's, that's not being holy. Um, treating, you know, whatever it is, read the Bible. It's right there for you. <laughs> so, so, so those are the three characteristics. Those are the things I want people to take away from this, um, to be holy, to be humble, and to be hungry. Um, in closing today, um, if you guys want to stand up, So some of you guys might be asking today, well, I don't really see myself as any of these things. And if, if, if there's no desire in your heart to, to change the way that you are, well then, you know what, that's okay. But if there's some kind of move in your heart to sit there and say, well, I want to experience more of God, but I don't really know how, then I just... I would just ask you to ask God, first of all. Ask God to give you that hunger, that desire for more of his presence. Ask God to help you become more humble. Because, it's a, again, we, we talked about this before. Our salvation is an act of grace. And by the way, our sanctification is also an act of grace. We can't do it on our own. And so I want to ask you guys to just take a few minutes, you know, maybe a minute or two, and just personally ask God to either make you, make you hungry, to make you more humble, to make you more holy. Um, also, Lord, and I'll just, I'll just pray us out. Um, God, I just thank you for this message, and, and thank you for the words that you've spoken, not just to 
uh, for me to tell other people. It's for me as well. God, we need more of your presence. Lord, we need to be more holy. We need to be more humble. These are things that we all need. But God, it's the desire in our hearts um, for more of your presence that I think really defines what the wheat that make fruit, Lord. And so Jesus, I, I just pray for each one of these people. I pray um, that in your in your mercy, Lord, that you just reveal yourself to each one of us. If there's any of us who are struggling to experience more of you, Lord, I just pray for a supernatural sense of your presence right now. And that might look differently for each individual person, but, but God, I just have confidence and faith that you are going to do what you need to do for this church. Lord, you have called us not to a place of complacency, but a place of, of just coming into more of your presence, Lord. And, and so, Jesus, I thank you um, for your blessings, Lord. We bless the fathers. Um, we thank you for their presence in our lives. And, and despite what the culture says about dads or whatever, Lord, we just thank you that you are our ultimate father. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, Lord, and we just pray for more, um, just rev- not revelation, but uh, more, more Holy Spirit power, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. If what you heard today was inspirational or transformative, tell us about it. We love your feedback. For more information on how you can get connected, check us out at firmfoundation.church.